Hey folks, it's Kathleen here from Crime Story. And this week, we have a special edition with the fabulous Connie Walker, who was just named one of Time's People of the Year. We're talking to Connie about the new season of her Pulitzer Prize-winning podcast, Stolen, where she investigates the case of two missing Indigenous women and the crisis of policing in a place where people say that you can get away with murder. To catch that conversation, listen to Crime Story wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A warning to listeners. This episode contains offensive language and references to sexual violence. Okay, things are tense beyond imagination here right now, so I have no idea how much I will be posting in the days and weeks ahead. The crowds were enormous, gathering all across Syria for the first time since a nearly 50-year-old state of emergency was lifted by Syria's President Bashar Assad. It's April 2011. U.S. network ABC reports as the protests in Syria intensify. Protesters demanded the end of the regime, ripping down a statue of the president's father, bracing to see the reaction of heavily armed government security forces. The answer came quickly and violently. The unrelenting gunfire left dozens and dozens dead. The Arab Spring has landed on Amina's doorstep and she's just as defiant in the streets as she is on her blog. The government is using an old scheme of repression that would have worked in past challenges. Round up a few dozen and the coup attempt is quashed. This time though, I would say that they need to shoot a few thousand and detain a few tens of thousands to suppress things. Sandra is in Montreal, and the news coming out of Syria worries her. It's like mentally draining to keep up with a rhythm like this and to follow up the news. And it's emotionally very devastating also to live with the anxiety of bad news. It's been four months since Sandra and Amina connected online. They chat every day, sometimes for hours. And despite the distance, they're already referring to one another as lovers. Sandra and Amina have talked about what they might do if Amina becomes a target of the regime. In case something happens to her uh, or she goes in hiding, we would need a code. But also, I was questioning the fact, if it's so dangerous, why are you staying? Sandra opens her email and sees that Amina has sent her a blog post just minutes before everyone else gets to see it online. It was late at night, in the wee small hours. Everyone was fast asleep. She was in her room and she hears loud voices, but also like agitation in the house. Amina looks out of her window. Like many houses in Damascus, Amina's family home is built around a courtyard. A gate opens onto the street. Next to the gate, Amina sees the elderly man who works as a doorman. He's speaking to two men who've just come in. In her blog post, Amina describes them as muscular. I can see the bulge of pistols, likely knives, under their jackets. Amina thinks it's the Mohabarat, Assad's secret police. So I pulled on my clothes as fast as I could, 
the ones I have had laid out for such a moment. Simple cotton underwear and t-shirt, no underwire or anything like that. Jeans, loose-fitting pullover. Put on my glasses and stumbled downstairs to the courtyard. My father was already out there. He hadn't bothered to get dressed at all and was wearing just a nightshirt. He was already in animated discussion with them. When I appeared, one of them nodded. That's her. They say they've seen Amina's blog. They know she is out protesting against the regime and they're here to arrest her. But first, they out her to her father. Did she tell you that she likes to sleep with women? He crins. Pure poison. That she is one of those faggots who fucks little girls? The Arabic he used is far cruder. You get the idea? My dad glances at me. I nod. We understand each other. She is my daughter, he says. And I can see the anger growing in his eyes. And she is who she is. And if you want her, you must take me as well. This infuriates the men. He steps towards me and puts his hand on my breast. Maybe if you were with a real man, he leers. You'd stop this nonsense and lies. Maybe we should show you now and let your pansy father watch so he understands how real men are. I am almost trembling with rage. My dad moves his head slightly to tell me to be silent. Amina's dad asks the two men their names. He tells them he knows their parents. He says that Amina isn't who they think she is, that she's not an extremist, and that she's helping her country. Time froze when he stopped speaking. They would either smack him and beat him, rape me, take us both away. But then something seems to shift. The first one nodded. Then the second one. Go back to sleep, he said. We are sorry for troubling you. And they left. As soon as the gate shut, I... I heard clapping. Everyone in the house was awake now and had been watching from balconies and doorways and windows all around the courtyard. And everyone was cheering. My dad had just defeated them, not with weapons, but with words, and they had left. I hugged him and, and kissed him. I literally owe him my life now. I didn't cry. I don't think I cried. I was just like, oh my God, this is crazy. Oh my God, she could have been taken that night and thanks to her dad and her like bravery and like her his strength she was safe but also it means that it, they can show up next day it means that she should leave I'm Samira Moyedin and this is Gay Girl Gone episode 2 my father the hero I remember reading that post, My Father the Hero. Of course my queer Syrian unicorn would have a unicorn dad. 
It was so touching to read about her father standing up for her like that. And her post about her dad resonated with other people, too. I distinctly remember thinking that we now had a public face of the revolution in Syria. This is journalist Andy Carvin. It was an extraordinary read because Amina was a fantastic writer, very dramatic in how she told a story. It still uh, very much helped people think about what it was like not only to be an activist in Syria at the time, but also to be a member of the LGBT community there, which was under siege. Andy's role at the time is essentially social media editor at NPR. Blogging was probably at its peak globally at this point of time. At some point, Twitter became a dominant phenomenon. But even if blogging was becoming less important among North American audiences, it still held an important place in other parts of the world because in many cases it was simply easier to access the web than specific social media channels. At this point in 2011, regular media wasn't really sure yet what to make of Twitter and blogs and just social media in general. I mean, it had taken them long enough. Andy was figuring out this newish terrain for NPR. He had built himself a command center at their headquarters in Washington, D.C. I was borrowing monitors and other laptops from other people and from our IT department until I had I don't know, maybe five of them going in a semicircle around the curve of my cubicle desk. And it was perfect for me to monitor half a dozen things happening simultaneously across the region. I was making it up as I was going along. There was no roadmap for what I was doing. And what he ends up doing is going down a rabbit hole of watching the Arab Spring unfold online. Andy has a strong connection to Tunisia, where the Arab Spring kicked off. He had been there a few times to report on the lack of free speech and free media in the country. And he met local bloggers while he was there. And so when the first protests broke out there, they were the very first people I saw talking about it. And quite kindly on their part, they were willing to share information with me because they knew who I was. So when things heat up, Andy starts following the news and tweeting about it. He interacts with online activists who then introduce him to others. I didn't even tell my bosses what I was doing. And as it became clear in the coming days that protesters were organizing in other countries all over the region, I started putting fake invites on my Outlook calendar to ensure that I could have large blocks of time to follow things because I had to simultaneously convince NPR that there was value in what I was doing. And by the time the revolution began in Syria in March of 2011, I was monitoring more than half a dozen countries across the region simultaneously and spending somewhere between 10 and 15 hours a day actively on social media, talking to protesters and activists, rebel groups and the like. For whatever reason, the fact that I was using Twitter to engage with the protest community gave me a certain amount of cachet among them. And over time, as they trusted me and began to rely on me, I felt I was now involved in something that I couldn't just walk away from. It's kind of nuts, but Andy realizes he's setting the Western news agenda on the Arab Spring. I was sometimes tweeting more than a thousand times a day. 
Over the early part of 2011, my Twitter account grew from around eight or 9,000 followers to around 100,000 followers. For whatever reason, people gravitated towards my Twitter account to keep up with what was happening during the Arab Spring. There was certainly a time for part of 2011 where the Arab Spring seemed to be on everyone's lips and on everyone's minds. It's in this blur of monitors and messages that he comes across the blog, Gay Girl in Damascus. Andy sees Amina as a bit different from other bloggers and activists he follows. She was doing her own thing. She had a blog, and she was telling the story the way she wanted to tell it. She seemed to focus on writing long-form pieces and not really engaging directly with readers. It was, uh, it was a very different approach to communication. But... Unlike many of the other people who were posting on a regular basis, it wasn't as focused on there was another attack in this neighborhood today. X number of people were injured, 10 people were killed, etc. She tended to write in a very literary style, seemed to put an effort into setting the stage of what things looked like, how things felt, how she personally felt at that moment. There was an artistic nature to her style of writing that I felt was notable. In some ways, she struck me as kind of aloof, but, you know, that's fine. I'd regularly see Facebook and Twitter posts from the activist community discussing Gay Girl in Damascus. They were often promoting her posts. They were encouraging people to read her blog, and I would catch up on what she was writing then. Amina's My Father, the Hero Post attracts media attention, especially from the UK newspaper, The Guardian. And on May 6, 2011, they publish a glowing interview with her, calling her the heroine of the Syrian revolution. Female, gay and half-American, Amina is capturing the imagination of the Syrian opposition with a blog that has shot to prominence as the protest movement struggles in the face of a brutal government crackdown. The blend of humour and frankness, frivolity and political nous comes from an upbringing that straddles Syria and the US. I'm the ultimate outsider. My views are heavily informed by being both a member of a small marginal minority as an Arab Muslim in America and as part of a majority as a Sunni in Syria and, of course, as a woman and as a sexual minority. There were very few journalists operating in Syria at the time. The ones who were there tended to be under watch by the Syrian regime, which is probably one of the reasons why the author of the Guardian article used a pseudonym. And so it seemed like it was a great scoop for them. The article circulated quite broadly through the reporting community that was monitoring the Arab Spring. And I think a lot of journalists probably felt safe that they could use her as a source now. The Guardian story rockets Amina and the blog to new heights. Suddenly, everyone wants to talk to her about gay rights and the Arab Spring. She's doing a lot of interviews, but Amina, she doesn't always like what she reads. And there's one article in particular that really pisses her off, because it quotes other people who say that the protests and the changes that are happening could make things worse for queer people. She writes about it in a blog post titled Pink Washing Assad. 
Pinkwashing is when otherwise shitty authoritarian regimes point to the rights that gay people have in their countries as a distraction from their other human rights abuses. Or it's when the West uses the absence of gay rights in a country to justify invading that country. Amina says that the West is making her choose, choose between being Syrian and being gay. They want us to shed all those aspects of ourselves and embrace the oppressor if the oppressor lets us dance in his disco or make out in her coffee house. Boom. She nails it. This post really struck me. Because I've often been told not to criticize the foreign policy of certain countries because at least gay people have rights there. It's a grand bargain that us queer Middle Eastern folk are always made to choose our sexualities pitted against our other identities. But Amina was clear. She wasn't going to be used in that way. It was really powerful and poignant. I type under her post, beautiful. The fact that she got more attention on the blog didn't surprise me that much. She was, no, in a way, charismatic also. And for me, charismatic comes with sometimes, I'm not saying every time, with arrogance. You know, the attention really thrilled her. I think I noticed her change as soon as the blog became a lot more popular because she was sharing more the fact like, oh, that person made a comment. Did you see how much comment I got? She was very happy that news outlets were reaching out to her, that she had more followers, that her name was being shared, that she could be a voice for the community and also for Syria, exposing issues that were barely addressed in Western countries. She was, you know, I'm not saying triumphant, but, you know, she was quite happy about the success. Even, even, even if, on the other hand, she was very annoyed, very disappointed, and sad also about the situation that was happening in Syria. Sandra knows Amina is still committed to the Syrian cause, so she just mostly laughs off how the fame is going to her head. And for me, it was, it was fun, funny to see because... Because I'm not that type of person. But what Sandra finds difficult is when she doesn't hear from Amina. She writes about it in her diary. May 24th. This morning I woke up with a strange sense of emptiness. I remembered that I had dreamed of Amina the night before. I can still see her face and remember kissing her. Anyway, this morning I woke up and I'm really sad. I miss her face and her kisses, and I feel alone. Far from this girl, no messages on my BlackBerry or Facebook. Is she okay? News from Syria is never good, so I'm not waiting for good news. When I didn't get any news for a couple of days, I was freaking out because I was like thinking that something happened to her, that I would receive a message from someone telling me that you know, she'd been killed, she'd been arrested, that she's in hiding. It was not a fun moment, like being dependent on these messages to, 
to have a, a good day or a bad day or like being moody about it. And because Sandra has no idea when Amina might write, she keeps her Blackberry close. And it was like next to me, you know, on the in bed next to me. So if I was waking up at night, I would check my phone and I would see if I had any messages from Amina and I could answer even if it's two or three in the morning, my time, Montreal time. You know, it's like mentally draining to keep up with a rhythm like this. And this is where, like, my frustration was coming from. Yeah, I guess I was super lonely at that time. Yeah, and so it made me feel like there was like someone I could reach out for and vice versa. And that's why I think I just kept it this way. I asked Sandra whether she ever thought of just breaking it off. So I have questioned a few times our relationship. I thought that it was going to be the best solution for me to just quit. But I couldn't do it because I felt... I felt bad also. I felt bad of giving up on on her, on her fight. She was like risking her life, uh, facing adversity, facing a situation that I would never experience in my life. I felt that what she was going through was harder than my life. Waking up in a safe, warm bed and going to work safely finishing work, going back home safely again. Rational was like, okay, stop it. And the emotion is like, how can you, you know? So, yeah. Sandra can't break up with Amina, but her current situation isn't working either. So she comes up with a plan, a plan based on a movie, a movie called A Room in Rome. Uh, Samira, you recall that, that movie, A Room in Rome? Oh, boy. Yeah. This is my last night in Rome. Mine too. This movie by Spanish director Julio Mendem and producer Alvaro Longoria had just come out the year before, 2010. And it's a sexy one. Would you like to see me naked? I would love to. A Room in Rome is a movie about... Two girls that meet in Rome and they actually spend a few days in one room and they never visit Rome. It was a sweaty movie because it was it was very exotic and erotic at the same time. Oof, I'll say. Watch the trailer if you need a clearer idea. But it's safe to say that this film was fueling a lot of fantasies that year. It's the first time in my life I look like this at a woman. And never before a woman looked at me this way. Sandra's a real romantic. She loves these tales of star-crossed lovers. And the beauty of meeting someone that you never met and that just, like, starts a sparkle and ends up in maybe one of the best memories of your life. And here's the thing. The fantasy of a room in Rome is within reach because Sandra's friend is getting married in Italy in June and she's already got her tickets. Maybe Amina could meet her there. So I remember sharing that plan with Amina and saying it would be so great and amazing to actually meet in Rome. Like Italy was a middle 
ground. You know, it was like, okay, in between. On my end, yes, because I was going for sure. But on her end, how easy or complicated would, would it be to leave Syria? And she's like, okay, I'll try. I don't know, I will find a way to do so. Let me see what I can do. Sandra really wants this rendezvous to happen. If she can just get through the next few weeks, she can finally hold Amina in her arms. On May 2nd, 2011, Amina writes a blog post called Selfish Wishes. I have tickets booked for a vacation in Rome in June with my absolute dearest. I don't want to be in jail or being involved in a street battle then. I want to be living La Dolce Vita, reenacting scenes from a room in Rome, falling again in love and all of that. So for my selfish reasons, please, Assad, go. We do not want you any longer. Go and take your minions with you. I'm Charlie Webster. I'm the host of a show called Scamander. It's all about a woman from California named Amanda C. Riley, a beloved member of her local community and dying of cancer. But it was all one big lie. If you think you know what Scamander is about, think again. There is so much to the story that you will not see coming. The pregnancy is reversing the cancer. Listen to the show everyone is talking about. The Twisted Journey of Scamander is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I remember just getting a notification that uh, the plug is out, so I, I clicked on the link and I read it. Syrian writer and activist Danny Ramadan is at home in Damascus. He's sprawled out on a couch, hanging out with a few friends, when he first clicks on Amina's post, My Father, the Hero. I remember sitting there, reading the post, and then slapping my knee in frustration, and then Mariam's like, what's up? And I'm like, well, come read this with me. And I called her over, and she sat next to me, and she read the post. And as she was reading it, I was rereading it with her. Two young guys in their mid-twenties, clad in black leather jackets, muscular, and both smoking. That sounds like a caricature of what a Syrian Mukhabarat person would look like. Syrian Mukhabarats are usually in layman clothing, so they would wear whatever they want to wear. They also have a very unique haircut. They all have shorter hair on the top and longer hair in the back. Danny reads the part where Amina's father lectures the two Mahabharat. What are you, he says. Did the jackal sleep with the monkey before you were born? What are your names? They tell him. He nods. Your father, he says to the one who threatened to rape me. Does he know this is how you act? He was an officer, yes? And your mother, wasn't she the daughter of... What would they think if they heard how you act? To Danny, this sounds insane. Like there was this nervous laughter that was happening in the house as we were reading that, being like, oh, that will never happen. Some people who didn't speak English were asking what's going on, so I I summarized and translated, basically. And then we had this um, visceral reaction, really. Like everybody I remember were quite mad at the post, 
everybody in Syria have had a relative who was arrested by the Mukhabarat, and nobody will stand in their way. It just, it just never happens. Talking to the people who came to, to arrest her is useless. These are the bonds of the, the, the regime. They're not, they don't have power. They're there to do the job. And if they came back without her being arrested, they are now in deep water, right? So they will take her. There's no two ways about it. Danny is skeptical about the post because he has experience dealing with someone he thinks might be part of the Mukhabarat. I worked for an English-speaking newspaper, and it's an interesting newsroom because we weren't really making news. They're not reporting news because the paper is essentially a mouthpiece for the regime, just reprinting whatever the government wants it to. Among the rest of the journalists in the office, one guy stands out. And uh, there was one person who spoke no English whatsoever who just showed up later in the day and just sat down doing no work whatsoever. And then at the end of this day, this weird guy who did no work would go into the editor-in-chief's office and have a long meeting with him. We speculated that that person is Mukhabarat, is, is a Syrian intelligent officer whose job is to make sure the newspaper that is coming out tomorrow is towing the Syrian government line, that nothing in that newspaper is going to break away from the propaganda. Now, if he really is a Syrian intelligence officer, then it turns this joke of an office into something much, much scarier. It's, it's really hard to describe, but like the Syrian security, of, security officers, the Mukhabarat, they're our boogeymen. If you said the word Mukhabarat, it means that you are going to be arrested, disappeared, tortured, possibly killed, and made into an example for others who makes the same mistake that you did. This is how the Syrian regime is keeping most people under its thumb, Danny included. I am participating in the propaganda of the Syrian regime. While I disagree with the propaganda of the Syrian regime, but it was a paying job and I needed the work, right? And it's not like I can write anything against the Syrian regime in Syria. I would be arrested in a heartbeat. So it just felt like... It felt like I can, I'm, I'm spending half of my day lying, which, which was a lot, I would say. This is the tightrope that Danny's walking, to feel secure in a country that's increasingly dangerous. So when Amina's latest post appears on a blog entirely under her control, he sees it as completely reckless. And also, honestly, like one thing I remember specifically saying back then is that if somebody who's young and naive read that post in Syria— and then they were in a situation where they are facing the Mukhabarat, they might stand up to them, and that might get them killed. Honestly, before that post, I felt that Amina is harmless, and after that post, she felt like she's harming me, like she's harming us. Because before the post, she was just a gay girl who's writing posts, and people are celebrating her, good for her, that's awesome. But after that post, Oh, gosh, I was very angry. I was very angry because it was it was being taken seriously. Everybody took it as if that actually happened. So what really bothered me about that post, and I think bothered everybody in the house as we were talking about it, is the fact that nobody from outside of Syria is acknowledging that that post is fictional. We had no doubt that this is fictional. 
I was out on my lunch break. If I recall, it was still kind of cold. There was still snow on the ground. And I was on my way back uh, to the office. Um, there's a small park that you have to go through to, you know, to go and pick up some food. And I remember stopping there. I feel my blackberry vibrating. In Montreal, Sandra looks at her BlackBerry. She has a notification. She clicks on it. It's an email from Amina's cousin, Rania. Weird, because she hasn't really communicated with Rania much. The object of the email was, please read this while sitting down or something like this. So I just like stood in the middle of that park and I, and I, I read that email. Sandra Habibte, I hope you're well. Take a deep breath. I just had a phone call from Amina's dad and I put this together. I want you to see it before I post it on her blog. I'll let you know if I know anything more as soon as I do. I'm guessing if they didn't shoot her right away, then she's likely okay. I'm hoping anyway. The moment Sandra's been dreading has arrived. Next time on Gay Girl Gone. Sandra drops everything to try and save Amina. It was just like being in a movie, honestly. It was just like being in the turmoil and you don't know how you got there. Danny Ramadan hunts down any information he can. And I'm like, okay, so we can cut the bullshit right now and just talk about this person. Can you tell me if somebody was arrested? And he's like, I'll check our records. But in this fight to save Amina, no one can be trusted. I wasn't entirely convinced that his persona was 100% real. He might have been a Syrian agent. Gay Girl Gone was written and produced by me, Samira Moyedin, Brenna Daldorf, and executive producer Peggy Sutton. Sound design and mixing by Jeff Empman. Original music by Reza Moradas. Amina's blog posts are read by Tracy Rahi. Rania's emails are read by Abla Kandalev. Deborah Judgen is the executive producer of podcasts at Raw, and Georgina Savage is the lead producer. Suzanne Hamilton is the production executive. Our team from CBC Podcasts includes Roshni Nair, who is our digital producer. Ashley Mack is our senior producer. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts, and RF Norani is the director. Special thanks goes to Raw production team Joanne Patterson, Anna Marie Batho, and Rowan Lee Potter. If you're enjoying this series and want to help new listeners discover the show, please take some time to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Consider checking out another series from CBC. One I really liked is Bloodlines. It's a podcast about the missing children of ISIS fighters. You can find it, along with all other CBC podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. Tune in next week for an all-new episode of Gay Girl Gone. Or you can hear next week's episode now by subscribing to our channel on Apple Podcasts. You'll get access to the best of CBC storytelling early and ad-free. Just click on the link in the show description. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.